Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss breathwork. Breathwork is uh, it's all the rage in the wellness community right now, but humans have been using the power of breath to heal and transform for thousands of years. Reed and I discuss a variety of breathwork practices in today's episode and explore the similarities between certain of those practices and psychedelic medicine experiences. I want to thank you for your emails, your YouTube comments. Remember, you can email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca if you have questions or if you'd like to recommend an episode idea or even a guest that you'd like to hear us talk to. And if you want to interact with Reed and I on social media, we're on Instagram, Reed's at Innerspace Doctor. I'm at Dr. Steve Thayer. All right, let's enjoy this episode on breathwork. Hey, Steve. Hey. How are you feeling? I guess we're online because you were ill. Yeah. You know, we're going to be talking about breath uh, and breathing and breath work today. It's, a, it's I guess, appropriate because uh, it burns when I breathe. So, <laughs> Oh, dang. You've got that yeah. burn breathing disease? Yeah. Who knows what it is? I tested negative for COVID, but it's probably COVID because everyone has it right now. And those tests are often inaccurate. So I'm, I am in my spare bedroom, this tiny little concrete box in my basement. But since Reed and I are committed to this podcast and to you, our lovely listeners, we're recording this episode. Hmm. Well, thanks for getting back on your feet or your seat for this, Steve. Um, <laughs> yeah, out of the bed and under the seat. Did you ever have COVID before? Not that I know. I've never tested positive. I mean, I, yeah. I've... Uh, I got sick, I think, once, one other time. It was shortly after we got back from New York. We went to Horizons. Um, I think. Anyway, it was around that time. Mm. Yeah, I've tested many times and never tested positive. Who knows? Well, would you like to hear a poem about breathing? Always. The answer to that question is always yes. Okay, this is by someone named A. De La Madrid, and I don't know what A stands for. I forget. Um, but here it goes. One breath at a time, we unlock the secrets of our past. Those old scars that bleed into the deep tissues of ourselves, holding us back, making us dense and heavy. One movement at a time, we feel the weight of our suffering, the struggles that have gone and those yet to come, creating imbalance and angst within our soul. One gaze at a time, we focus on building the fire, illuminating the dark corners within, melting the unease in our hearts, igniting the light of our spirit, awakening the awareness of our ethereal nature. One count at a time we expand, we contract, we spiral out of our physical bodies into the consciousness within. We lift, we lift our hearts to the world, exposing the vulnerable and beautiful fabric of our emotions. All in this sacred space, in the gray light of each dawning day, one breath, one movement, one gaze, one count at a time, we arise out of the ashes of our former selves like a phoenix and we fly. Sounds very psychedelic. Yeah, it's uh, kind of a yoga poem talking about a practice, a breathing, moving meditation. Yeah, I mean, it sounded uh, transcendent, transpersonal oh, yeah. and and spiritual, you know? 
like uh, we spiral out of our physical bodies into the consciousness within. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I've certainly, uh, you know, that, that's not my experience with regular day-to-day breathing. I can tell you that much, but it has been my experience with some of the, the breath work strategies, techniques, exercises, practices we're going to talk about today. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So maybe we could start there if you have a little story to tell about psychedelic breath work, because I think it's important to point out that when we talk about breath work, it means a lot of things these days. And I like to look at them as um, breathing practices versus kind of psychedelic breath work. And we can, mm-hmm. we can tease those apart more as we go. Well, I like the term breath work, right? Because of course, if we stop breathing, we die eventually. Like breathing is something that our, our nervous system, our brain does uh, without us having to think about it. It's something you can control voluntarily, but it's also one of those, one of those interesting body functions that will do it on its own and you can take the steering wheel, right? Oh um, yeah. There are other body, other body functions. We, that we can't really do that. Like I can't, at least I can't uh, take the steering wheel of my heart rate or my digestion in any particular way. Those things happen on their own. Yeah, it's fascinating because we have these things in our body, these parts that are like our arms are voluntary for the most part. Uh, Our heart, for the most part, is involuntary. Sure, you could learn to speed it up, slow it down within reason, but the diaphragm and therefore our breath is both. And, And because of this and other reasons, People view it as a bridge that links the conscious and the unconscious, uh, those functions of our body in our awareness and beneath the surface. Yeah. And as a bridge, it's like, you know, often in our, um, when we do uh, exercises with our clients around breath, we'll talk about the breath being the remote control for the nervous system. That mm-hmm. it's it's a way because of its bridge-like nature, though it's connected to these other systems in the body, to influence those systems that we don't necessarily have direct control over. So you manipulate the breath to manipulate the heart rate, manipulate the breath to manipulate, you know, the, the neuroendocrine system, the um, you know uh, immune system, even. Yeah, I like that. I like what you said about influencing these other systems. Uh, control the breath, control the mind. Or my working definition these days for breath work is just intentional breathing. Like breathing plus attention, intention, um, and the movement of energy is breath work. So we essentially control the length and depth of our inhales or exhales to influence our cognitive or emotional states. And that could encompass both the breathing-based practices or yoga-based breathing, some might call it, and the breathwork journeys like holotropic and rebirthing and all these other kinds, shamanic. Right. Yeah. So that term, that adding that word work to breath, these are, these are deliberate. They are, um, you know, there's only so many knobs we can, you know, twist and levers we can pull with respect to the breath. So there's only so many variables you can change, but it, it's what separates the breath work practices from just normal day-to-day breathing. But, um, we might also talk about how you can change your normal day-to-day breathing to also enhance your sense of well-being and your physical health. Like most of us, we either are over breathers or under breathers. And, uh, a lot of there's, you know, we can talk about mouth breathing and the difference between mouth breathing and nasal breathing, 
mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But you asked me a question that I didn't answer, and that was uh, just sort of stories or examples of this uh, altered state of consciousness via breath. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my my most recent experience was actually at a workshop we did for some of um, our clinicians, where we were talking about what we call our the essential domains of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and. Uh, you guided us in a breathwork exercise combined with uh, sound that would probably closely resemble what we what's called the holotropic breathwork exercise. I know that there's mm-hmm. some, you know, the, the groffs are very particular about what you call holotropic and, and not, but, uh, but yeah, it was short. You know, it wasn't hours long like a, a typical holotropic session might be. Yeah was what, what, 10, 15 minutes. Uh, but holy cow, like I, I entered an, an altered state pretty quickly where I felt fairly euphoric. I felt, uh, like I wanted to, I think what I said was I wanted to get up and run through a wall. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just felt, I felt energized. I felt powerful. I felt, uh, expressive. Like I was connected to a part of myself that, um, didn't get a chance to express himself like from this parts perspective. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was great. I even had a few insights about things I'd been thinking about, even in that short time. And all we did was change the rate and depth of, of breath and combine it with, you know, evocative sounds, music. Yeah. There's something magical about doing that. Maybe I should use more triggering words or something quantum no, there's something really special about about. How dare uh, you use the word quantum in my presence? <laughs> about using breath work um, to occasion an altered state or to dive into the parts of us beneath the surface, and it's I've always found it interesting that in many languages the word breath and spirit share the same origin, like pranayama in uh, Sanskrit is. Uh, control of breath, but also control of life force. Yeah. And there's so many traditions that use like control of breath, not only to alter sort of mental state, but alter physical capacity. You know, I, I, I took um, martial arts classes when I was young. And uh, one of the things that we would, that they would train us in, not that this was like, this was just kind of your average suburban middle-class karate class, but, um, even there talk, they taught us to breathe from the diaphragm and, uh, not to hold our breath when we were moving, but to use the breath to, um, help us move through these forms or do these particular moves. Um, but I remember I, I dated a girl in high school who was a singer and, uh, she, one day she was like, Hey, punch me in the stomach. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not going to punch you in the stomach. She's like, you don't have to hit me hard, but like right here, right, right, right. Like my solar plexus. And I, I just kind of like poked her there. It was hard as a rock. And she, I was like really impressed. Cause I was a high school athlete and thought I was, you know, strong or whatever. And her abs were harder than mine. And, and she wasn't like an athlete or anything. She's like, yeah, it's from singing. It's from all my diaphragm control and practice. And I was mm-hmm. thoroughly impressed. I've seen that. There's a, a yoga teacher I like in Australia named uh, Simon Borg Oliver. And when he teaches these workshops, he'll, he's like, I don't know, 60 something at least. He'll lay down on the ground. He'll get the biggest possible dude from the crowd to come stand on his belly while he'll just mm. 
keep lecturing or demonstrating things um, just because he has this insane control over his diaphragm and core muscles and, and bandhas as they call them in yoga. Mm. Yeah. There's that there's, I'm a, a Marvel superhero movie geek. And then there's an incredible Hulk movie where Bruce Banner goes to this jujitsu, like Brazilian jujitsu practitioner. I think he's actually the guy in the movie is actually like a, a real life BJJ guy. Mm. Um, might, might be one of the Gracie's. I can't remember. And so there's a scene where he's teaching him to breathe from his diaphragm and he just like manipulates his diaphragm. Like you might manipulate your fingers, like different shapes up and down side to side as he's teaching him to breathe, you know, deep with control. And it's just, you know, the average human being, we don't get that, that this is a muscle and it can be trained. Yeah. Yeah. You see it in the, in some of these super yogis where, where they'll, they'll do those waves through yeah. their abdomen. But when I was in my yoga teacher training in, in New York, there was this, one of the senior teachers, I think his name was Yoshi. Um, he, he was just like a true yogi, but I remember he, he was demonstrating the activation of these bandhas. And one of them in particular, where you kind of, um, well, you activate both the pelvic floor, Mula Bandha, and then this Udhyana Bandha, this flying Bandha, where you're kind of bringing your abdomen in and up. And when he did that, he was sitting in Lotus on a hard floor. And when he did that, he left the ground, like literally the picture of him in the air. He just like, boom. And then of course he came back down. He didn't continue levitating uh, infinitely, <laughs> but, but I was still That's blown good to away. Know. <laughs> How did he pop up off the ground doing that? Did it just like the his glutes flex really hard and it just sort of it was the force of his uh this upward motion of uh like the core muscles and the and the muscles of and around the diaphragm just created momentum or yeah, just you know whatever popped him up super quantum energy shot out his butthole and <laughs> sent him up yep. into the air i don't know yep that's quantum stuff that's huh. incredible you know there's this interesting correlation i don't know if it means anything I'll give that disclaimer, but I'll just, I'll just pass it your way to make of it what you will. <laughs> but if you look at different uh, mammals, like, I don't know, a rabbit has a respiratory rate of, I don't know, 40, 60 breaths per minute, lifespan, five, six years, a mouse, uh, I don't know, 75 to 150 breaths a minute, lifespan, two, three years, monkey, 30, 50 breaths a minute, lifespan, 20 something years. Um, there's us humans, our respiratory rate is 12 to 16 lifespan, 70 to 80 whales, respir- respiratory rate, three to five breaths per minute lifespan, well over a hundred years. I don't know what to make of that. Slow down your breathing, live longer. Maybe. Cause you hear like, we only have so many heartbeats, right? And so, you know, you want to get a good low resting heart rate. Only so many times that muscle can flex. Yeah. One of my breathing practices that I do is, uh, I guess you could call resonant breathing, or basically it just involves sitting and slowing down your breath to, let's say, six breaths per minute or less for some period of time, several minutes at least. And uh, I don't know, that one. that one feels extra powerful, useful for me to really kind of come into this coherence with, um, with the rest of the body, the state of kind of slow, attuned, mindful presence. Yeah. 
I like to I like to at least slow down my exhales and then prolong the pause at the bottom of the breath. And for me, that helps me drop into the moment. And especially if I'm feeling tense or anxious, just slow. And I'll do it by creating tension, at, like in my palate, almost the same way you would uh, create tension to <clears throat> to clear your throat. Mm-hmm. So just, and when you exhale, it gets, it's audible because of that tension. So you can kind of hear it. And I'm breathing through my nose, not my mouth. And for me, a combination of that, or even try to make a noise, like mm, a humming noise, uh, is incredibly calming. Like it gets me there quick. Darth Vader breathing. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking on Wim Hof's website. I think it was his website. They even used that term, like Darth Vader breathing, to, uh, I don't know what it does in particular, apart from slow the breathing down. It might stimulate the vagus nerve because it's all up there in the palate, but. It's, well, it ties into that book you mentioned, Nestor's book of nose breathing. Um, It's Mm -hmm. what. You know, Wim Hof points to in some ways, most schools of yoga practice will tell you to breathe in and out through the nose and slow it down and to tie it into these like monkey respiratory correlations I mentioned before. Um, And the guy in Australia who I mentioned, Simon, one thing he said once was uh, fitness is to do more while breathing less. And that stuck Hmm. with me. I've uh, thought about that a million times since because like in yoga class, I could be in the most insane thing, upside down, um, contorted, but uh, progress for me on the physical plane, at least involves doing the same thing, but doing it with more ease and with a slower, um, a slower respiratory rate. That is a, that is a great phrase that's going to stick with me too because you could say that about mental fitness too i mean a lot of times we'll when we're stressed or you know out of our depth we're over breathing or you know panicking to do more yeah. while breathing less i like that yeah so like if there's if there's a simple takeaway from our discussion so far you know breathing in and out through the nose and breathing slow and maybe like you said uh sometimes we need to put a little extra emphasis on the exhale and, uh, and sometimes a pause. Yeah. So you mentioned James Nestor's book. I I can't remember if, if I talked about it before we hit record or after, but just in case it's, um, breathe in or breath. I think it's breath. I always forget if there's an E on it or not, but I think it's breath and it was, man. So I've got mild sleep apnea and, uh, mm-hmm. He talks about sleep apnea in that book. And it just, every time I review it or get reminded of it, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to make sure I'm doing what I need to do at night. I can't fall asleep with that stupid CPAP machine on, but I've, I've done the other things that he suggests. I have a, uh, you know, they have those, um, like I think the, the brand name is breathe right strips that open your nasal passages. I got this other thing called intake. It's like the intake breathing apparatus that, you can just, uh, they've got little stickers that have little um, pieces of metal in them and you put them on either side of your nostrils. And then the band that goes over your nose is hard plastic with magnets. So it's a lot more rigid than a, a breathe right strips, like a bandaid. And it just pulls my nasal passages open. And then I tape my mouth shut at night. So it promotes nasal breathing, which is a lot healthier than mouth breathing. And in Nestor's book, oh, wow. he put silicone plugs up his nose for like 10 days and his health just plummeted because he, he could oh, only yeah. mouth breathe. 
That's when he he volunteered as like a subject in the Stanford Sinus Center study, right? And like where he did only mouth breathing. Um, yeah. And his blood pressure went up like 20 points the first few days. Uh-huh. Uh, that's crazy. And then after he took the plugs out, you know, all those health markers correct themselves within, it was pretty fast actually, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And his snoring, um, it's interesting when he, when he was, did that thing you were talking about of taping his mouth, he went from snoring for like four hours of the night to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my wife will be like, Hey, you're going to, did you forget to tape your mouth last night? It it does help, even with my apnea, because my apnea is very like positional. If I fall asleep on my back and my jaw collapses and falls back, then it's a lot mm-hmm. worse. And the tape just helps cue my mind to you know keep my jaw forward. I guess. Yeah, interesting. And uh, you know, maybe to add a little layer of uh, modern day nerdy science to the breathing less um, idea, and when you take fewer breaths per minute, you take in more carbon carbon dioxide and higher CO2 in the body means more oxygen absorption because O2 and the red blood cells want to travel the bodies, the parts of the body with high CO2. So when O2 molecules leave the bloodstream to enter like our cells and tissues, a CO2 molecule leaves a cell moves upstream up the bloodstream. So optimal CO2 levels when we breathe fewer breaths per minute, encourage more optimal levels of O2 absorption. I mean, there's a balance, right? There's a middle ground, but the easiest way to do this is to um, slow down the breathing, build up a little bit of CO2 by breathing lighter and less frequently. Um, Taking that say from our average 18 breaths a minute in the country to breathing, you know, those practices, like I was talking about doing six times a minute. Um, There are studies that show this could bump your CO2 by 25% over a number of minutes. And, uh, and that's, uh, yeah, I think that's why that practice both feels so good and does have some, um, some health benefits, some longevity benefits. I've heard that's why the breath hold and in a Wim Hof breathing technique, why the breath hold after like the 30 breaths is so important. So like, cause you're hyperventilating and you want to um, replenish CO2 with the breath hold. Cause you, you, that's that last breath that you let out like 90% and then hold. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And have to, to expand on the other side of that coin or going too far in that realm. Have you ever had lobster claws during breath work or seen it? I've seen it. I haven't had it myself. Yeah. I remember uh, whatever. Yeah. Carpopedal spasm. But, uh, that's a really interesting one. I get asked about a lot because people who have done holotropic or other forms of long breath work practices for not for altered states, uh, I'd say a third of people um, at some point who do that kind of practice are going to experience tetany. I certainly have, and I've I've seen people get it for the first time or their first breath work, and it can be jarring. Uh, it can even be a little painful. So it's basically where you're. Uh, you might have tingling around the mouth, lips, you might have some twitching, but the lobster claws where you have these carpopedal spasms where you're, you have a contracture in your arm, but it's from, it's basically a hyperventilation syndrome from where you're blowing off too much CO2 and you get in this respiratory alkalosis because blowing off CO2 raises the pH, more alkaline in your blood that constricts your vessels. 
And uh, that is what leads to like numbness, tingling, muscle twitching in these certain parts of the body. Um, and, uh, you know, you can usually prevent it by um, breathing more, a more optimal balanced rate of inhales versus exhales. But sometimes it's just because someone's dehydrating or have, they have a little um, uh, low calcium, magnesium or potassium, for example. Uh, but one more thing to add is Stan Groff actually likes that. Um, he calls it a he, he says, it's not a pathological condition. It's a process with healing potential because it creates this biochemical situation that facilitates the emergence of all the emotional, physical tensions. Mm. And that sounds very Stan Groff, right? I mean, the, the little bit that I know about what he's said about holotropic breath work is, you know, it's very much trusting the process, trusting the, the manifestation of the inner healing intelligence that you, you do the work. You don't bring any like your own theory or um, interpretation of what's happening uh, or guidance to the process. You do the breath work to unleash, you know, the inner healing intelligence. So whatever shows up should show up. Yeah. And unleash is a good term for it in this because like he's like, this is a unique opportunity for stuff in the unconscious realm with a strong emotional charge to bust out. Right. So I'm glad you brought it up because I think a lot of people approaching certainly holotropic breath work, you know, they go to their local yoga studio that's doing it or whatever, um, might be alarmed if they see it or if it happens to them because, you know, to, it it looks like a stroke (laughs) or it looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody having a, a major medical event. And that might require intervention. Like if it's happening and it's really, really painful for somebody, um, is there a way to, to resolve it quickly? Yeah. So quickly depends on the individual, but you basically stop the hyperventilation and Mm -hmm. let it resolve on its own. And that is one of the nice things about psychedelic breath work versus ayahuasca or um, I am ketamine, for example, Uh, you can dial it back. You can turn it off. It's more like IV ketamine where you were dripping someone a little bit of ketamine and we're like, whoa, they're, they're having a hard time. Turn it off. Um, So you can can... stop the breath work practice and they'll likely resolve in a a while, just depending on the person and their hydration and electrolyte balance. Yeah, in reality, and Stan Groff might disagree. He might say, lean in, <laughs> keep going. Yeah. Um, but you can, from my perspective, like I like a balanced perspective. Yeah, you let things emerge. You trust the inner healer. But also, um, we also respect uh, physiology and our body cues about hydration and electrolytes and and things like that. And we don't have to punish ourselves unnecessarily. Um but right. yeah, you, you can, like, if it starts happening to me, I'll just slow down the breathing a bit, um, mm-hmm. or maybe take a pause, take a sip of water or something like that. So you mentioned ayahuasca and I've heard people compare holotropic breath work, uh, ceremonies or sessions to ayahuasca ceremonies in that they're often done in group contexts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that they often, you know, they last a little while. I think ayahuasca probably lasts a little bit longer than a holotropic session, but, um, yep. But uh, people tend to experience similar things 
like these non-ordinary states, but non-ordinary states that often involve, that for some people involve transformations. You know, people will shapeshift. You have people crawling around like animals, um, you know, making noises and stuff. Uh, people experiencing rebirths or connection to past lives. It gets, it gets real trippy and all you're doing is breathing. So people like to speculate that you're, and you, maybe you, you, you know, I'm going to ask you in case you know more about this, like if it's more than speculation about, uh, releasing in, uh, what's the word, basically your body's own source of DMT. Like, are, are we releasing DMT when we're doing a holotropic breath work or is it something else? Well, um, so that's still up for debate in the scientific literature. Um, that's what I thought. Not not the effects of DMT, like inhaled or IV, NNDMT or 5-MeO-DMT, of course. Those are, um, those are intense psychedelic experiences. But, but the, the deeper I go on the literature around um, the brain's natural release of DMT, both while alive in response to certain practices and at time of death, is uh, so mixed. It's a debate that rages on without a clear answer and, uh, or a clear consensus. Yeah, I just wanted to, to lay that out there for people because you'll hear, you'll often hear people in the podcast space or YouTube space or whatever yeah. who love to talk about endogenous DMT um, and they'll make sort of declarative statements about it. I, and I think you're right, right? The, the science is not conclusive. Um, so let's, let's we just not, don't know. Uh, yeah, we just don't know. And it's okay not to know. We can have interesting theories, uh -huh. but w what, we, what we can say is what we observe what we observe is that people doing this type of breath work uh, experience or report experiencing very similar phenomena uh, that you might experience with a psychedelic like DMT. Yeah. Yeah. And if we understood everything, that would be quite boring, wouldn't it? Leaving yeah. out the mystery of life. I was talking to my kids yesterday about the grand mystery, you know, um, because sometimes my kids will, will hear, hear things from friends or they'll, you know, hear something on YouTube. Dad, guess what? Did you know that this is the way something is? And I'll be like, is it really? And <laughs> and then invite some skepticism. And, and then, yeah, we talked a bit about the grand mystery and how that make, keeps life interesting. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, so while we're on the topic of psychedelic breath work, I mean, I, I lump these practices into a bucket term called psychedelic breath work. Mm -hmm. In contrast to the uh, breathwork practices that one might engage in um, for breath control and uh, meditative, non-psychedelic uh, um, intentions, but uh, you know maybe we can we can go over those a little bit, like uh, the holotropic versus other um, camps, and these you know these emerged roughly around the '60s. Interestingly, with Stan Groff. Um, bringing holotropic breath work, but Leonard Orr was the one who kind of started this rebirthing breath work when he was sitting in a tub in the 60s and, and did this connected deep breathing practice in warm water. Um, and then a bunch of other shamanic and, um, and different names of practices that people, um, people are doing more and more these days. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with all the different types. I think holotropic is probably the one that comes up the most, uh, probably in part because it's well marketed. But um, you know, Stan and Christina were very much involved in early LSD research, and so 
when it became illegal, I think there was a, a move to the practice as it for similar therapeutic benefits that they were experiencing with LSD. Yeah. And some people even trademark them. Like there's, um, there's this one, uh, I think Judith Kravitz started, um, transformational breath work. I think it's trademarked as, but it's a conscious connected one, deep and slow done through mouth or nose, but there are others by like Michael Stone. Um, there's, uh, David Elliott has, I think a three-part breath that's more young, like you drop in quicker. Um, and then a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, shamanic, uh, shamanic practices, um, there's another rebirthing one by Sandra Ray, I think. But what's interesting to me is uh, what they have in common is, well, they're journeys that bring about altered states of consciousness. There's often a music component with uh, mm -hmm. an arc to it. Like could be live music, could be shamanic drumming, it could be a playlist, but with a like a peak and a come down, like a yang and a yin phase. Um, there's often an intention and integration. There's a catharsis around it. And there's also mm -hmm. like a common shift. If you look at the studies of them, and there are more and more studies, but a shift from beta brain waves. If you're looking at an EEG, our daytime normal default mode to slower waves, like alpha, theta, even gamma. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're really interesting practices and different uh, flavors and varieties, but I'm of the opinion that um, just like in uh, spiritual and contemplative practices, the, the, you just find one that works for you, that hits the components, and there's not really a wrong or right answer or one true church in that regard. I like that, because as you were describing that, I was, I was reading from, uh, this is kind of the cool thing about doing this online, is I can look at websites and <laughs> in my notes at the same time, but I'm, I'm reading from, uh, the Groff's website on holotropic breathwork. And it's basically describing exactly what you just described. And it's probably not necessarily unique. Well, not probably you just laid it out, not unique to their approach, but they talk about holotropic combining accelerated breathing with evocative music in a special set and setting with eyes closed, lying on a mat. Each person uses their own breath and the music in the room to enter not an ordinary state. The state activates the, like we were saying earlier, the natural inner healing process of the individual's psyche, bringing the mm -hmm. seeker a particular set of internal experiences with the inner healing intelligence guiding the process. The quality and content brought forth is unique to each person for that particular time and place. While recurring themes are common, no two sessions are ever alike. Mm. So over the years, there have been uh, a number of studies done on holotropic breathwork. Like I think in the 90s, there was one that showed when holotropic breath work was combined with a little psychotherapy, there was a reduction in death anxiety and an increase in self-esteem. There's one like, I don't know, in the 2000s where uh, holotropic breath work, um, yeah, interesting, better communication with others and increased in insights about the world. One in 2013 that showed it kind of... Um, just prove the hypothesis uh, in the small study, at least the best it could, that there was some emotional catharsis and um, it was low risk. It was safe. Um, and then I think there was one even later, more recently, that showed increased self-awareness and uh, some character improvements that I thought this was really interesting, less needy and slower to react in anger. Hmm. 
That's interesting. So if, if I'm running the discussion section of these studies, right, where I get to speculate um, on why we think these improvements are happening, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering in my mind, are is it the same reasons we think that psychedelics are helping people? Because we can think that uh, we can make speculations about specific neurotransmitter changes or neuroplasticity, like all these physiological changes that are happening as a result of people using psychedelic medicines. But there's also just the experiences that we tend to have on psychedelics that seem to track with some of the experiences people have in this psychedelic breath work, where you experience oneness, like you said, emotional catharsis. Um, you're brought into the present moment in a dramatic way, and you have what, like you've called before on the podcast, a corrective emotional experience. Um, and all of these things are, we like. it's like we need more of these kinds of experiences regardless of the things we suffer from. They're just, it's good medicine for what ails us as a result of being human in modern society. Yeah, and I can tell you in my life, there is not another tool I can think of that has been more useful for me to uh, self-regulate, to surf the wave of difficult things and make it to the other side as my breath. Like I use it all the time and people notice it. If I'm going for like a, a 10 out of 10 deep pressure massage, for example, I just naturally like in, engage that yoga breathing or if I'm having my wisdom teeth out and decline anesthesia and they're crunching in there with local numbing only, I just breathe or, um, anything, anything difficult. I just default to, uh, breathing through it. And, uh, and it has just gotten me through so much. Yeah. I mean, this, this podcast is as much for me as it is for our listeners because breath and breath work is something I've always felt drawn to, but never really committed to until very recently. Um, and man, nothing like getting sick with an upper respiratory infection to remind you how important your breath is. And you can't breathe through your nose. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. I haven't been too congested, but like, you know, the, the, the fire in my lungs to remind you how important breath is. But, um, you know, I, I like to exercise, uh, but most of what I do is resistance training and weight training. And, and then I'll go like on a, at least now, um, but then I'll go like on a hike and get with a buddy of mine who's an ultra marathoner and be out of breath. Like by the time I get out of the car <laughs> and, um, it just reminds me how out of shape I am cardiovascularly and resp like respiratorily or whatever. It's not a word, but, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm committing to explore breath work to enhance those skills the way you described your skills, Reed, but, uh, also to just get my, my lung capacity higher so that I can enjoy life for longer. Yeah. Do more while breathing less. Um, there you go. You know, another benefit of breath work is I, I've never found, well, you know, there are very few things that help me tap into the inner reserves of energy that I found as, as breath work. Someone once told me that once you hit your, I don't know, thirties or forties, you better, um, you better have ways of tapping into energy within yourself because naturally our infinite stores of boundless energy spilling out that we have from like the time we're a toddler through adolescence in our twenties. Um, it starts to change, right? Not naturally with the cycles of life and, and hormones, but, uh, there's even a, a pranayama practice, a yoga-based breathing practice called the uh, Kapalabhati, the breath of fire that is also 
happens to be called the yogic cup of joe because of its it's like drinking a cup of coffee but that's where you're um exhaling with some force um you're just focusing on um like this pumping of breath um that uh, really gets the energy moving. And uh, so when I did my yoga training, um, you know, many years ago, the main thing I took back from that is from these teachers who I really admired, they'd say, if you don't have time for your yoga practice in the morning, drop it, but don't drop your pranayama, your breath practice, at least Mm. do these things. Like, and some of it is um, just some simple breath control. Some of it is some breath hold. Some of it is some like, uh, fiery uh practices like those uh, uh kapalabhati for example yeah that breath of fire is one thing i have been i have been playing around with and uh we talked about it a little bit i think on our last episode when we, we did that cold plunge um yeah but i i've been playing around with like using breath to heat myself and i know wim hoff's all about this right um, but i'm an amateur right now but it's been effective. I've been taking cold showers and then just like controlling my breath. And it's incredible. It's incredible what I can mm-hmm. endure. Yeah. I, I love, I, I really appreciate Wim Hof uh, and all his quirkiness. I really appreciate what he's brought to the world in terms of uh, breath work and br- breathing practices and uh, exposure to cold. But uh, in lieu of podcasting last Friday, when we normally do, um, it was actually quite uh, convenient that you got sick. Thank you, Steve. Um, because I got to <laughs> go pleasure. into the river with my uh, two sons and my brother and do some cold plunges. But like tr- our ritual, speaking of like making things sacred, is to do a few rounds of Wim Hof, basic Wim Hof before we plunge and do that two or three times. But it's just like 30, uh, 30 pumps of uh, really deep, aggressive breaths and then emptying the lungs and breath hold for a minute or however long you want or can. And then just one more inhale, hold for 10 seconds and then go plunge. Yeah, we should probably make the, the PSA that don't do this while you're in the water. Um, Mm-hmm. Like I've heard that said about a lot of breath work, like there might be some breath work techniques that you do, you can do well in water, but, um, I've, I've heard it said like, don't do Wim Hof while you're in the water. Cause you could black out and that's not good. Yeah. The, the idea when you're in the cold is to remember that mantra we were talking about earlier, do more while breathing less, like, you know, find the most uh, relaxed state you can and uh, don't hyperventilate um, because then you can, you can uh, rest in that state longer before you freak out. Yeah. I remember uh, I was listening to an interview with Josh Waitskin on Tim Ferriss podcast. He's the the guy, I think the the movie searching for Bobby Fisher was based on. He's a chess prodigy, brilliant guy. Uh, but yeah, I guess he was doing, maybe it was Wim Hof or another kind of breathing practice while in his pool and he, uh, to increase breath hold time and he blacked oh. out and his wife just happened to have found him, um, at the bottom of the pool. And so he survived, but yeah. Wow. Cautionary tale. That's wild. Huh? Yeah. 
You know, another important point that's coming to mind for me is um, when we talk about meditation, uh, you know, we recommend meditation a lot. We talk about mindfulness all the time, but it strikes me that the most common reaction we get from our clients and from even friends and family in response to a, a recommendation to try meditation or their attempts at meditation is like, no way. That was just, that was nuts. My mind was going a zillion miles a minute. That was difficult. It was too difficult. and Too hard, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And that's why I really recommend more um, starting with a breathing practice as a gateway. It's almost a prerequisite in my mind um, to use the breath as a tool to settle the mind into more of a silence space because and then meditation can unfold more naturally but but there's a there's an order of things i think what would you what would you suggest to somebody as like a bare minimum intro breathing practice well it's that's the nice thing about about breathing is uh you can just tune into your breath for two minutes a day and that's beautiful you could do um, you could do any one of the apps out there, um, Headspace, Calm, Sam Harris is waking up, Intro to Meditation course, and they will bring in the, the mindful breathing as part of it for the most part because um, it is pretty much a, a tried and tested concept that um, that for most people um, is... Uh, is one of the most useful tools for getting into a meditative state. Uh, and it applies to psychedelic uh, journeys as well. One of the most useful skills we give our clients in the preparation phase before dosing sessions, some basic breath work, like uh, whether it's the presence process by Michael Brown or a simple uh, mindful base, base breathing or any other flavor. So when I was first learning meditation, um, and was given the instruction to tune into my breath or to pay attention to my breathing. My experience, and I imagine some people's experience mirrors mine, um, was that when I paid attention to my breath, I couldn't, I could not help but take over. Like I could not help but take voluntary control of my breath. I couldn't follow it without taking the steering wheel. And I would, I would notice I would started to feel a little bit more anxious, not more calm when I paid attention to my breath and I have kind of a neurotic disposition. So this is not surprising, but, um, so when you're helping people with this particular issue, what, what might be a coaching cue for them? Is it more just sort of surrender and pay attention and practice and eventually it'll happen or what? To get around that, uh, that Tendency challenge, to like take control. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, first of all, use the breath, um, as a, as a window or a signal or, um, kind of a barometer of what's going on inside. Like if I, when I stand on my mat in the morning or sit on my meditation cushion, um, first thing I'll do is just listen, like, is my breathing shallow choppy, which it often is, especially if, is it nervous and tense? Because, that's just a window to my mind. My mind is probably nervous and tense if my breath is strained or erratic. Um, and I just remember to be be gentle with myself and uh, first observe and then just slight shifts of deepening 
like say you're breathing in and out through your nose while sitting there. You're just going gently there. You're not trying to do the best Darth Vader breathing hyperventilation zero to 60 immediately. Um, and, uh, and then you notice that when the breath is more even and rhythmic, the mind is more clear and balanced. And because it's that bridge between conscious and unconscious, you can start to cross that bridge, but, but it is a patient, slow process. And to this day, I won't try to rush it. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, um, sometimes like as I experimented with this process myself and I just like, okay, just pay attention to your breathing without doing anything. Just watch your breathing. And I'd, I'd, uh, you know, my watch, I'd check my heart rate and my heart rate would go up first. I don't know if it's just a Steve thing. Like I get anxious when I'm paying attention to my breath or what it is, but, um, and then it wasn't until I like would then deliberately slow it down the way I described earlier with those longer exhales that my heart rate would then go down. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, if, but to get a little more specific, if I'm teaching like yoga based breathing and just for fun, the Sanskrit terms of those, um, in this pranayama realm are puraka is the inhalation. Kumbhaka is breath hold or retention and richaka is the exhalation. But if someone's new to it, I'll, I'll recommend that they only practice the puraka and rechaka like don't do the retention uh because we do have this natural um this natural response to co2 rising where we're going to panic and we're going to uh, hurry and take a breath um the oxygen advantage book by patrick someone or other um what is really good and talks a lot about that um mm -hmm. but uh and that and like you said there is this ratio of like one to two, for example, inhale to exhale, that's uh, really useful that I'll often have people start with um, a slightly longer exhale because that's what most of us do need to work on. Um, and then when you do add the retention in between, you might do a ratio of like one, four, two, like, and you can multiply that by whatever you want, meaning one count, inhale, four, hold, two, exhale, or two counts, inhale eight hold and there's a million variations of this but that's uh that's one way i'll uh dish it out to like in yoga teacher trainings or uh workshops i like that yeah it doesn't have to be super fancy right and it's i mean really the act of just simply paying attention to your breath and then slowing it down could be enough of an instruction for somebody but i like these like counts you know we can tell people to box breathe there's these simple ways of making it easier for people. You want to, you want to hear a quote by Sri Swami Sivananda just for fun? Do I? <laughs> yeah. I bet you do now, huh? So <laughs> Sri Swami says, just as there is connection between wind and fire or light, so also there is connection between prana and mind. Wind fans the fire, prana also fans the mind. If there's no wind, fire, or light, get steady. Yogis approach Brahman, a.k.a. conscious bliss, the highest reality, by controlling prana, breath, life force. Yeah, like I was saying earlier about my my breath of fire practice, it's definitely lights up my mind. And I've, what I've tried to start doing is in the afternoon when I feel my energy, um, you know, waning a bit, instead of grabbing another caffeinated beverage, I'll, 
I'll do some breath of fire. You know, what's funny uh, about what you just said is Kapalabhati, breath of fire. If you actually translate it literally from Sanskrit, Kapala means skull, Bhati means shine. So it's actually skull shining breath <laughs> that uh, lights up Steve's mind. Well, my skull shines on its own. Uh, it's one of the benefits of having a shaved bald head, but <laughs> maybe breathing can in- in- increase the luster of my bald head. Um, isn't that what Tumo, uh-huh. I was looking at Tumo breathing, translates as inner fire, I read, practiced by Tibetan monks. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's kind of the the big predecessor to uh, a lot of Wim Hof practices, to be honest. I mean, it all comes from these, these, uh, like, well, these ancient civilizations, um, in very different parts of the world, whether it's, uh, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, old Christianity, even, um, Qigong, Sufism, the martial arts have their own and shamanism has their own. Um, and I, I just have this bias, um, in the, or personal path for me has been more in the, the yogic based pranayama practices. And, you know, what's interesting there is, um, the kind of yoga I gravitate to or default to the most is, uh, called Ashtanga and Ashtanga means the eight limb path. And there are in Ashtanga, these eight limbs are, you know, first, um, first is the postures. Well, you have the yamas and niyamas, like the foundation of moral restraints and uh, observances beforehand, because, you know, it essentially gives you superpowers and you want to aim them in the right direction towards ethical good and compassion. But, but, um, then you get into the asanas, the yoga poses, then you get into pranayama, control the breath, control the mind before you even start to move towards meditation. Then it's like pratyahara, turning inward, withdrawal of senses, dharana, concentration, dhyana is you finally start to meditate. And uh, then the eighth limb is samadhi or pure unbounded awareness. Um, and it really speaks to what we were talking about earlier, where um, there's a sequence of things and you can't jump right into meditation for most people anyway, without um, learning to be able to sit comfortably, like doing some stretching and learning to control the breath to clear the mind and learning to aim your intention and all that stuff. Yeah, I like that. I like what you're saying. I think that'll help a lot of people. <clears throat> this idea that if you've been intimidated by meditation, that meditation, the way it's often sold to you, doesn't have to be the place you start. That, uh, breath and, and body can be more accessible and be a better place to start. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, so you want to learn to fly a plane. Um, you might spend a lot of time in the classroom first, um, but you're not going to fly a plane without, of course, the practice, but you do have to understand it. Um, and you have to do some of the other practices like learning your pre-flight checks and everything else, but, um, like learn the operate, the big mechanics, and then into the subtleties of it, um, before your plane can actually take off, you even have to do some things and, and pranayama breath control is, uh, does show up before meditation. It's like the fourth limb and meditation is the seventh. Um, so between them, there are these three other limbs and, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to just jump into, jump into the other ones, even, uh, like 
the more advanced you are in breath control, the more able you are to use the energy of the body, the life force to access the other limbs, including the next one, which is withdrawal of the senses. Like that's not that easy to do. Like if you just try sitting there quiet for a moment without feeling or touching or smelling or sensing or looking or listening at anything, that's hard. Um, um, and then we can get into concentration um, when all your life force can be detect, detect, directed at one thing, one thing only. Again, pretty hard to do, especially these days. Um, and then that's finally when the plane can take off or when um, another analogy is like when the cucumber d detaches from a plant because it's ready, but you don't yank it off prematurely. That's when all the other limbs are in place and when you're ready to meditate or fly. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Well, Reed, is there anything else about breath or any tools that we want to point people toward um, that might help them explore this on their own? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there is one YouTube channel that I really like um, for just real quick uh, breath work exercises, and that's uh, Breath Work Beats. It used mm -hmm. to be called like DMT breathing or whatever, but I think they might have changed it. So breathwork oh, yeah. beats, and they have uh, they're really I mean they're really well produced, but just really quick exercises with all kinds of outlandish promises about how it's going to change your life. But um, another one is an app that I, you mentioned a couple of the great meditation apps. Uh, I discovered a new, um, I think it's relatively new app that's specific for breathwork called Othership. And of course, you know we don't get any kickbacks for mentioning these products, but, um, other ship is, a, is, I've been playing around with it. It's pretty intuitive and well-produced again, just real quick breath work exercises to music and beats. Yeah. I think, uh, another book I've really enjoyed, um, is uh, heart breath mind by Dr. Leah Lagos. You hear about it on on uh, some podcasts these days. It's a pretty new book, but it's it actually gets into um, using um, your breath and as a tool to actually, um, you know, calm your nervous system in general, increase your heart rate variability, which we didn't talk about, but is one of the kind of physiologic measurements we can use about our nervous system state. And uh, to attain this state of kind of coherence between mind and heart and breath. And uh, she actually, through this book, goes through her whole program that she, that she normally would do in very expensive workshops or personal coaching with uh, CEOs and athletes. And uh, um, I think she's in California, but you can access it through that book. And in there, she also recommends a lot of, uh, a lot of ways of, uh, like using apps to practice using devices to measure your HRV and things like that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. We also didn't talk a great detail about using breath work as a psychedelic integration, right? If you've, if you're getting psychedelic assisted psychotherapy um, and you know, your, your therapist is talking to you about integration, there's lots of ways that we've talked about on this podcast, of course, to integrate those experiences, but a breath work practice is a great, one of those great tools to work on integration in as much as it does the things that we've talked about in today's episode. You know, um, I just got this book called somatic internal family systems therapy because, oh, cool. uh, you know, we just did that 
you know, as you know, <laughs> you did it too, but that like foundational, um, IFS training, I'm going, um, deeper and deeper on that path, but this is a book that caught my eye, but, uh, the approach outlined by the author, um, to get to this embodied self, this integrated self is, uh, well, number one is somatic awareness. And number two is conscious breathing, mm. moving further into like you get into radical resonance, mindful movement, attuned touch, and then um, towards the embodied self. But, but I think it's a really fun somatic take on parts work. Mm. You have to tell me what you think. That does sound really interesting. And that, that term conscious breathing, I believe there was a book written by Gay Hendricks by that title. Uh, one of my, my, my dissertation chair gave it to me when I was complaining to him about feeling anxious in graduate school. <laughs> He's like, here, read this. Yeah. Conscious breathing. Yeah. So um, other resources, I mentioned Michael Brown and his book, The Presence Process, is a pretty deep dive into connected breathing, breath-based meditation practices. There's so many books, but but we're picking and choosing some uh, some ones, I guess, that have really impacted us. Um, and then apps, I think we're both fans of the Waking Up app and the introductory mm-hmm. course. Uh, there are a lot of ways you can go there, but uh, also Insight Timer is a goldmine if you can navigate it of both guided meditations and if you pay for it, the courses, the multi-day courses, um, and a lot of good ones. If you read the reviews and um, ask ask us, um, email in to the podcast, um, we'll yeah. probably do another episode on breath. Yeah, I think we will. Um, anybody, uh, if you listeners have anybody that you want us to reach out to, maybe get on the podcast, um, who uh, could school us a little bit more on breath or any other topic for that matter, um, please email us. I always, I always drop that in the intro and the, when I think in the outro, but uh, psych mm-hmm. frontiers at novamind.ca is our email address. If you're watching on YouTube, you could always drop a comment below. I've, I've got one more uh, qu- quote spam nugget of roomy wisdom to leave with you. If you'd Sweet. like it, please on breath. So from our favorite Sufi poet, Rumi, there is one way of breathing that is shameful and constricted. Then there's another way, a breath of love that takes you all the way to infinity. All the way to infinity. I love it. Well, let's end this with a nice deep breath. I managed to do it without coughing. That's a good sign. And uh, get well soon, Steve. Thank you very much. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again.
Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.